What do Muhammad, Confucius, Buddha, and Moses have in common? What do they all have in common? Well, they all founded a religion and died of old age in comfort and blessedness. Contrast those men with Jesus, who died alone at a young age in humiliating fashion by his enemies. So here's the question. Who is seeing that or hearing that story of Jesus and saying to themselves, that's the message for me? Yep, that's the guy I want to follow. (laughs) That's the spiritual leader I want. Someone who dies young in humiliating fashion. Who does that? (laughs) Nobody. No one would. Of course not. And yet, and yet, here is the astonishing historical fact. The suffering and death of Jesus Christ completely transformed the ancient world and has completely shaped our modern world today. This is a strange yet undeniable fact of history. Agnostic historian Tom Holland, he wrote this in an article in The Spectator. Quote, The cross of Christ remains what it has always been, the symbol of a transfiguration in the affairs of humanity as profound and far-reaching as any in history. All of us, let me say that again, all of us are heirs to the same revolution, a revolution that has at its molten heart the image of God dead upon an implement of torture, end quote. That is agnostic historian, Tom Holland. But how in the world is this possible? How is this possible? How is the suffering and death of some backwoods preacher from a no-name town in the first century, how did that change the world? How does it continue to change the world, and how does it continue to change our hearts? Well, Jesus himself gave us the answer to that question at the Last Supper. Let's turn there together. If you're new with us, we've been going verse by verse through Mark's gospel. And today we come to Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 26. Mark 14, 22 through 26. If you have your Bible, you could turn there. If you don't, the verses will be on the screen behind me. Mark 14, verses 22 26. Verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given, them, given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, 
I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is God's word. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for gathering us here together. And Father, we have not come here to check some religious box. We have come here to have a meeting with your son. We've come to glorify him, to worship him, and to honor him in all things today. And so we ask you in humility, Father, please, please show us Jesus. Show us his beauty, his power, his wonder, and his mercy today. And so that that vision of your son might change us from the inside out. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So the answer to how the cross changed the world is given here. In Jesus' explanation of the Last Supper. Of the Lord's Supper. This meal gives us three world-changing truths. And amazingly, it continues to do that. Every time we take it together. Every time this meal is taken, here and around the world, it continues to preach a message to us. What is the message? There are three parts to it. Three parts. Number one in your outline. The first message the meal gives us is the importance of the cross. The importance of the cross. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. Now, what is, what is the meal that they're eating here? What is the meal? They were eating a meal called the Passover. It's the Passover meal. What is the Passover? It was an annual meal that commemorated the defining moment in the history of Israel. The Israelites, you see, were enslaved to the most powerful man on earth, the most powerful nation on earth. They were enslaved by Pharaoh of Egypt. And God miraculously delivered them from their bondage to Pharaoh. And so the Passover meal, for generation after generation, the Jews would gather together annually to eat this meal together in celebration of God's miraculous deliverance. Now, there was a very particular order to the Passover meal. This wasn't like your, your typical Southern Baptist gorge fest where you just dive headfirst into whatever you can get your hands on, okay? That's what we you know. We have potlucks here every couple of months. It's just we just dive headfirst into the buffet before us, okay? That's not what happened at Passover, <laughs> okay? Passover was a very orchestrated meal, and you would actually have a presider over the meal who would kind of lead you in each element, Okay? in each element of the food, in each element of the drink. And during the meal, there would be four different cups that you would drink from, that you would drink wine from, okay? And they all signified different things. And so the presider would get up and he would help you. He would tell you what each one stood for and then you would all drink together. And then he would explain the next element of the meal you would eat together. Then he would explain the next cup and then you would drink together and so forth, okay? And so we read in our story today 
What is happening at this point in the Passover meal is Jesus and his disciples are drinking the third cup of wine at this point in the Passover. Okay? And the name of the third cup of wine of Passover, the cup was called the cup of redemption. The cup of redemption. That's what they were drinking at this point. And so during this part of the Passover meal, the presider would then stand up and he would break bread. Break bread. Everybody would break their bread. He would hold up the broken bread and he would say, this is the bread of our affliction. Okay? And then you would eat together. So, imagine the astonishment of the disciples. When Jesus who is presiding over this Passover, he stands up, he breaks the bread, and he says, this is the bread of my affliction. This is my body, broken for you. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He is saying the first deliverance in Egypt was just a foretaste. It was just the appetizer of a much greater deliverance to come. There's a much more profound redemption coming. A redemption not just for Israel, but for the entire world. Jesus is here in our text today. He is completely redefining the significance of the Passover meal. He is saying, generations have taken this meal, and generations will continue to take it. But the generations that follow, they won't continue to take it in remembrance of deliverance from Egypt. No, they will take it in remembrance and celebration of freedom from a different enemy, even greater powers. They will celebrate freedom from sin and death when they take this meal. I hope you are grasping Jesus' words this morning. I hope you're seeing how significant this is and how shocking this is to his friends who are seated at the table. Jesus is saying that his death is the climactic event in all of history. He's saying, if you thought the exodus was a big deal, wait till you see what's coming next. Wait till you see what I'm about to do. Jesus is fixing to change the game, folks. He's fixing to introduce a new covenant. A new covenant in his blood. And that, my friends, is what all of history has been about. It's what all of history has been about. It's what all of history has been moving toward. It's been moving toward the cross. This is an astonishing claim from Jesus. But you might ask at this point, why? Why is the cross so significant? Why is it the central event in history? Well, I'm glad you asked. Point number two in your outline is the meaning of the cross. The meaning of the cross. So what did Jesus' death actually accomplish? What did it do? 
Well, Jesus did not choose just some random night and tell his buddies, okay, folks, y'all gather around. I'm going to give you guys a lecture on my death. No, that's not what he did. No, he chose this night for a reason. He chose the Passover. Therefore, if we want to understand the true meaning of Jesus' death, we must understand the meaning of the very first Passover. So let's look at it together. At the very first Passover, here was the context. Pharaoh had enslaved the Hebrews, the Israelites. It was an act of terrible tyranny and injustice. So God comes to a man named Moses. And he says to Moses, I am going to bring down divine justice on Egypt. But one of the most amazing things about this story comes in Exodus 11. There's a lot of amazing things about the Exodus. But this is really striking here in Exodus 11. You see, in that chapter, God doesn't say to Moses, he doesn't say, hey, when my justice rains down, it'll only hit the Egyptians. You guys, you'll be fine. Don't worry. When justice comes, it's only coming to Egypt. You guys are cool. Is that what he says? No, it's not what God says. God says, my justice is pure justice. Pure justice. Which is a problem for us. <laughs> because pure justice means that anyone who is present, when God's justice comes down, they will feel his wrath. Anyone present. You see, most people want to divide the world into good guys and bad guys. But the Bible divides the world into bad guys and worse guys. <laughs> there are no good guys. Okay? At least not where God is concerned. There are no good guys anywhere. You see, every one of us, me included, we have been spitting in the face of our Creator since the day the doctor slapped our fannies. Fannies was a word my grandmother liked to use. We've been spitting in the face of our Creator since the day we were born. Therefore, this is what God says. God says, if my justice comes down for one night, Everybody's in trouble. Everybody. It doesn't matter whether you're an Egyptian or an Israelite. It doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. It doesn't matter whether you go to church, pay your tithe, and try really, really hard to be good. It doesn't matter if you teach a Sunday school class or play guitar in the band. You will be subject to justice. And you will not survive. Because God's justice is pure justice. And you won't survive it. Unless, unless, God says, a lamb is killed. And its blood covers 
your doorpost. The Lord God says, only if you have taken shelter under the blood of the Lamb will my divine wrath pass you by. In other words, your pedigree, your nationality, your discipline, your effort, your upbringing give you zero hope when divine justice comes. Zero. Zero. Your only hope of salvation lies in a substitute. It lies in a substitute. What do I mean a substitute? Well, you see, that night when divine justice passed over the land, there was either a dead son in the house or a dead lamb in every home. It was one or the other. Either a dead son or a dead lamb. Justice either fell on you or it fell on the sacrificial lamb. The lamb became your substitute. And the death angel then passed over your house when he saw the blood of the lamb which is, of course, why it's called Passover. The judgment of God passed over the nation of Israel. Not because of their church attendance, not because they played bass in the band. It's because of the blood of the Lamb. That is why judgment passed over them. But this leaves us with a question, does it not? This leaves us Scratching the old noggin, doesn't it? Here's the question. Why does the sacrifice of a cute little lamb give us exemption from justice? How could that be? How could the death of a cute, furry little animal pardon us from sin? From justice. How could it do that? And the answer of Isaiah, John the Baptist, and Jesus is, it doesn't. It doesn't. The death of the animal was not really what exempted you from judgment. So what did? What did exempt you from judgment? Well, in our text today, when Jesus stood up to bless the food that night, it was the weirdest Passover in history. The weirdest one. Why do I say that? Well, because something very important was missing from this meal. Something very important was missing. When Jesus blesses the food, you can see here what foods he blessed. There's the bread. There's the wine, but where's the main course? Where's the main course? All of the Gospels include this meal, and in none of the Gospels do we find a main course. There is no mention of a lamb in this meal in any of the four Gospels. 
So how can this be? How can you have a Passover meal without a lamb? Because at this meal, the lamb wasn't on the table. The lamb was at the table. The lamb was the one presiding over the meal that night. When John the Baptist saw Jesus for the first time, do you remember what he said? He said, behold, the lamb of God. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, why would John call a human being a lamb? Because Isaiah did. Isaiah did. In Isaiah 53, the great prophet predicts the coming of a suffering servant. Of a suffering substitute for the sins of Israel. And Isaiah knows good and well that an animal is not a proper substitute for a human being. Only a person can substitute for a person. And so Isaiah says there is a person coming. He's coming to be our true and worthy substitute. And in Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet says about him, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He poured out his life unto death and was counted with the transgressors. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah is describing a great substitute, the capital S, a great lamb. And this great lamb, this great substitute had to be human, do you see? Had to be human because only a human can substitute for a human. But this lamb also had to be divine. He had to be. Why? Because only a divine person could actually carry the weight of God's divine wrath against evil and wickedness. Only a divine person could bear it. And that is exactly who we have in Jesus. He's the God-man. He is the ultimate lamb with a capital L. He is the lamb of God come to take away the sins of the entire world. And this is why Jesus stands up at his meal. He holds up the cup of redemption and says, this is my blood poured out poured out for many. Don't you see? Jesus is directly referencing Isaiah 53. He is saying with the cup of redemption, I am 
the suffering servant that Isaiah promised. I am the Lamb of God to whom all the other little lambs pointed. And this is the meaning of Jesus' death. Jesus is our substitute. He is our substitutionary sacrifice without which we cannot be saved. But maybe you still have a question at this point. Maybe you say, but why does it have to be this way? When I was a skeptic, when I was an atheist, the cross just totally bum-fuzzled me. And I heard about the substitutionary sacrifice deal. But it still confused me because I was like, but why couldn't God have done it a different way? Couldn't he just love and forgive us without all the bloodshed? Without all the brutality? Without the cross? Well, there actually are several profound answers to that question. But I only have time for one answer today. And it's the one answer that I eventually discovered that led directly to my conversion to Christianity. And Jesus gives it to us here. This brings us to our last point. Number three, the power of the cross. The power of the cross. So what is it about the cross that has the power to change our hearts and to change the world? Well, the most famous verse in the Bible makes it pretty clear. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So why the cross? Why a substitutionary sacrifice? Because that's what love is. That's what love does. True love gets its hands dirty. True love is substitutionary sacrifice. That's what it is. All true love is substitutionary sacrifice. That's what it is. The divorce rate is so high in this country because we fake love each other. We say, we'll be together, baby. Nah. As long as you meet my needs and make me happy, of course. We'll be together forever. But, you know, as soon as you stop doing that, as soon as this relationship costs me something, I'm out. I'm out. Fake love says, when I'm unhappy, when the feelings dry up, when it costs me something, I'll leave. But true love says, 
when I'm unhappy, when the feelings dry up, when it costs me something, I'll stay. I'll still stay. That's because true love is substitutionary sacrifice. That's what it is. Ask any parent about this. If you're a parent in the room today, you know what this is like. You, you've got something big planned. You've got a, you know, a big anniversary, a big date. It's going to be great. You've got big plans. And then what happens? You're here in the other room. <laughs> what I've heard a couple of times, one of the kids is doing something terrible in the bathroom. And you're like, oh no, <laughs> he's sick. There's vomit everywhere. And you're like, oh man, oh, we had reservations. <laughs> Dang it. What do you do? There are some parents who say to their kid, sorry about your luck. Sorry about your luck. We're going to eat. There are some parents who say to their kids, hey, tough duty. Life's hard. Get over it. I'm not giving up my career for you. I'm not giving up my job for you. I'm not even giving up a single date night for you. There are parents who will say that. But there are other parents who truly love their kids. And they give up everything for their children. Everything. They give up their career. They give up their goals. They give up their dreams. They give up their date nights for their kids. Because that's what love does. That's what love does. That's what love is. Love is substitutionary sacrifice. But sin has blinded us to this truth. Sin makes us operate on this principle. Your life for me. You sacrifice for me, for my interests, for my self-interests, my self-image. But Jesus Christ came into the world saying the opposite. He said, my life for you. My life to serve your needs. My life poured out for you. I will die. So you can live and live forever. And that is how true love works. True love doesn't say, I love you. True love puts its money where its mouth is. True love gets its hands dirty. Buddha doesn't get his hands dirty. Allah doesn't get his hands dirty. Confucius doesn't get his hands dirty. But Jesus does. You'll find him in a manger, in a cattle trough. And you'll find him at the cross. Because he is true love. 
That's who he is. And true love is substitutionary sacrifice. True love says, my life for yours. And here is what anyone who has true love, from a parent, a spouse, a sibling, or a friend, here's what they'll tell you. Substitutionary, sacrificial love changes your life. It just does. It just does. I used to work at the Boys and Girls Club. And we had a saying that we would tell each other, the staff, all the time. We'd tell volunteers that come in all the time, here's what we would tell them. Because the statistics back this up 100%. Here's what we would tell them when they came in. We would say, it only takes the love of one adult to change a child's life. The statistics there are overwhelming. All a child needs is the love from one adult. Doesn't have to be a family member. Doesn't have to be a friend. Any adult that looks at them and says, genuinely says, my life for you. It changes that kid's life forever. It changes it forever. All they need is one. All they need is one. Because substitutionary, sacrificial love changes everything. It does. And that's how the cross changed the world and continues to do so. At the cross, we hear God the creator God, shout with a megaphone, though you hated me, I love you. Though you didn't want me, I have always wanted you. And though you sin against me, I forgive you. That's what we hear at the cross. And when we hear those words from a parent or a spouse or even just from one loving adult, it changes our lives. It does. But when we hear those words from God, from our creator, well then, it changes the world. <laughs> 